Uh, yesterday, I was actually taking the time uh, after uh, watching some football, and it was a glorious day. Good job, Sooners. Um, and then after watching that, I, I took some time to actually clear out some closets and some of my dresser drawers and that kind of thing, and just wanting to make sure that if there's something that I haven't worn in a while, to, uh, to pass that along, to take that to goodwill, to let someone else be able to enjoy that piece of clothing or whatever it may be. And uh, as I was doing so, there's one particular shirt that I've kept since uh, second grade. Uh, this is 91-92, and believe it or not, when I was in college, I would wear this thing. It was super tight, and I looked swole. Um, it was fantastic. And so this was my, uh, my class at Jinx West uh, Elementary. And uh, this grew tremendously once we combined all the different elementaries. We had like 600 or so in our graduating class. But this was just that group that we went to elementary school with in my grade. And when you're finished, you can see if you can find my name on here. That could be fun for you. Um, and so the reason why I bring that up is because I can remember specifically at that grade of even being asked by, by of all teachers, my music teacher for our class of what do you want to be when you grow up? And it was one of those fun things that we were trying to figure out what we want to, what we want to be. And we actually sang songs about getting to be a banker, uh, getting to be a doctor, getting to be a professional athlete, getting to be a fireman. And so if, if I asked you, there would just be a, a whole slew of, of different uh, uh, things that you guys said as well when you were young of what I wanted to be uh, when you were young. But what's interesting, as we get older, we kind of changed even asking that question as opposed to what do you want to be to, to what do you want to or what do you do? And there's nothing wrong with what, what we do, but so often we don't talk about when we were a kid of, I want to I do the work of a fireman. It's just, I want to be a fireman. Uh, I, I want to be a soldier. I, I, I want to be a policeman. I want to be a nurse. I want to be a doctor. And that's kind of who I am. And then with that, these are the things that I do and that I accomplish. And the reason why I ask that is because for those of you who are, who are in Christ, we are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We are called to, to be Christians. And so my, I guess my question is, in Christ, what have you become? What have you become? And often we focus on what we do. There's nothing wrong with that, but what have you become? Because who you are will therefore entail what you do. Like, that's going to come out of the being. The doing is going to come out of who you are and, and what you be, if that can be some proper improper grammar. And as we look at this passage here today, my, my hope is that last week, and, and I've heard from, from a few of you, even I love the fact, just the way that God works, we sing that, that doxology hymn as a tag on that, ver, on that song, King of Kings, that we were singing, and then we tagged the doxology, that old familiar hymn that many of you know by, by heart. And even just this week, I, I had a chance um, at doctor's appointments on Thursday, and so as I was driving through town taking care of a few errands, I happened to drive by down St. Andrews, and, and I saw one of our people mowing, and so I stopped by, and I got to visit with Faye, and I was just like, hey, how are you doing? And just visiting with her, and it was uh, an encouragement to, to my heart to, to take and put into practice what I challenged you guys to do last week in light of what we saw last week of Christ, and just this glorious, majestic passage of just who He is and that idea of that Monday morning and throughout last week of getting up maybe just a little bit earlier and just gazing at Christ. Don't, don't take your Bible. Uh, don't take your phone by any means. Just, just focus and just be in the presence of Jesus. And she was sharing with me. She was able to just have that. And as a result, uh, she would just sing the doxology. And I was like, how, how sweet is that? And then we sang it here uh, this morning. And the reason why last week is so crucial to this week is because Paul gives us this 
most majestic view of just who Jesus is, and as a result of seeing him, then he is compelled to go and to be who he's called to be. Now, I know you are not Paul. No one is. There is only one of one Paul, but there's also only one of one you. But what we have in common is that we are in Christ. And for all of us, we may have different things that we do for the glory of God, different things that we're able to accomplish in this life, but all of us are in Christ and we're called to be who he's called us to be in, 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 in a certain kind of parameter and mindset to see what that looks like. And so uh, I, I just want us to, to look at this this morning. Colossians chapter 1, let's look at verse 24. We're going to finish out the chapter today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What, is, what does that mean, Paul? Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully uh, carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Friend, I, I, I know that at times it can be difficult, but I pray that our, our time this morning that we would press on to the purpose that God has for you, that God has for us. So let's pray to that end. Pray with me. Father God, I pray that as we saw uh, last week, uh, and hopefully I pray, Lord, that we were stunned by the beauty and the grandeur and the supremacy of Jesus, that this morning, as a result of that, you would remind us and teach us just who you've called us to be. And if you would, would you just take a moment just to ask the Lord that he would teach you, remind you of who he's called you to be. And if you would, would you pray for me? that I'll be a help to you as we look at this text today. Well, Father, we bring this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So that age-old question, why am I here? What is my purpose? Or maybe another way to put it is, what is just kind of this, the meaning of life? Do I have meaning? I, I imagine for all of you, and this is not a bad thing, I think, to have aspirations, desires, and dreams to want to accomplish for yourself, for the glory of the Lord. I, I want my life to have value and meaning. I want my life to accomplish things that are bigger than I, that, that go forth, that I leave a legacy when I've breathed my last on this earth. I believe that uh, has all been for all of us. And if you are a little bit uh, kind of disenchanted with that notion, I hope that today that you're emboldened and encouraged to, to go forth and be who God's called you to be, that you have meaning in your life from he gives you first breath to last breath. There is meaning and purpose in your life, and one of the most difficult things to find meaning and purpose in is when there is pain. If you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to see that Paul just off the top speaks of is persecution. He talks about persecution, that there is purpose in the pain, that the meaning that we have in life at times in this sin-soaked world, we are going to go through labors and hardship. It's going to be uh, suffering, trials, however we want to phrase it. 
But not only does he say that that's going to be, and that's what he has experienced, but he talks about in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. And you hear that statement, and you're like, what? How? I mean, either something is wrong in your head, you got some kind of fatalistic tendencies in your life, like how can you say, I rejoice? Do you have some kind of, you know, sadistic mindset that, that you're wanting to experience hardship just because of, of maybe how it makes you feel or whatever it is? Like, how can you honestly say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake? How could you possibly do that? At least that's the question that I ask when I read something like that. I don't know about you, but there have been times where I've gone through trials, suffering, hardship, persecution. But what Paul is experiencing is he's literally being persecuted by being in a prison cell, probably under house arrest, but in chains, in Rome, writing this letter to the church of Colossae. And as he's writing to them, he's like, I am being persecuted and I rejoice, but how? I think there's two reasons. The, the two are this. One, the hope and the glory of God in your personal life. That's how you rejoice. I think that'll be on the screen. The hope and the glory of God in your personal life. When you have something that's bigger and greater than you to want to be a part of or to accomplish, somehow, some way, when that's the case, you can find joy even in the midst of suffering because you know what it is producing in your personal life, that there's a reward, there's a hope, there's life everlasting. And this isn't just something that Paul, who was maybe, you might say, well, Paul was off, and there's only one of one Paul, so he can do this, but that's not for everybody. But that's not the theme throughout the New Testament scriptures. In fact, in the book of Acts, we don't need to turn there, we can jot down the references. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the, the apostles have just literally been persecuted and beaten for proclaiming the name of Jesus. And when they gather together, it says, and this sounds just what? They rejoice to be considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Like, they're, they're excited about this. Like, I'm so honored that I get to suffer shame for his name. First Peter chapter 4. Peter shares with this church who's going through it really, really, really hard. If you want to study a book about suffering and how to travel through that, read 1 Peter. Peter says, share the sufferings of Christ. Keep on, uh, keep on rejoicing as you encounter those. Familiar passage, James chapter 1, verse 2. The apostle James says, consider it all joy, my friends, when you encounter various trials. How, James? How, Peter? How, apostles? How, Paul? I love how James puts it, because when we encounter those trials, what reason why we're joyful is we know what those trials are, and here's the key word, what they're producing. We know what it's producing within our life. It doesn't mean that if, if I am incredibly hurt and pain that I'm just smiling like an idiot. It's recognizing that somehow deep within me may not be happiness, but there's joy that I cannot even begin to explain or comprehend, but there's joy because of what I know it's producing, and I have a hope and a glory in my personal life and in my personal relationship with God Almighty. But the second is this, is the hope and glory of God in others' lives. I can rejoice in suffering, and Paul says, because it's for your sake, Church of Colossae. It's for the sake of the church. There's hope and glory of God in your lives. I'm not just thinking about me and what I'm experiencing, but what I'm experiencing does affect me personally, but it also affects you. Two different times in verse 24 and 25, he says, this is for your sake. This is for your benefit. He's others-minded. He's focused on what this could accomplish and produce for them. Another way you could put it is Paul loves seeing people come to Christ, grow in Christ, so it's worthy to suffer. Like, it's worth it to do that. 
And you go, I don't, I don't know about that. That just seems odd to me. You will suffer for the things that you love, and you will suffer for those things that you love even with joy if you really think it's worth it. I'll give you two examples. One, the athlete. You know of the athlete that is willing to get up super early in the morning before the sun even rises, and they go out there and they either put the shoes on and they go for, for, for a run mile after mile, pounding the pavement. They go to the pool and they swim lap after lap, doing what is just unnatural, sweating in a pool. I hated those practices. And then others might go and put the pads on, and they might, they might hit. They're hitting the weights, and they're just literally tearing their muscles apart in order to build them up. They're suffering. They're sweating. They're maybe even bleeding. And then they say, you know what? I'm going to do it again this afternoon. We're going to do it two a day, and we're going we're gonna to do something. Why? Why would we go through this and be willingly to put ourselves through it? Because of what it's producing and what it will accomplish. Not just for me, but even for our, our team, for, for, for our city, for the Olympics, maybe even for our country. Look at what it produces. It's worth it for the sake even of others and myself. But that's the example of the athlete. What about the example of, I haven't met yet, uh, personally, there may, there may be some out there, but I haven't met yet, a lady who came up to me and said, uh, I got pregnant, I went through pregnancy, uh, I gave birth, I went through the labor, and I look at that child and I say, not worth it. I have yet to meet a mom who would say that. I have met moms who have been honest about the pregnancy was hard, I was maybe even on bed rest, there was fear, there was anxiety, there was pain, I got to the to labor and delivery, and it was even worse than what people warned me about. It, it was just ridiculous. And then all of a sudden, going through all that suffering, I now can rejoice to go through that suffering because of what it has produced. And it's worth it. If I have to suffer that you might have life, it's worth it. That's how Paul can say, I rejoice in suffering for your sake because of what it produces. I know at times it's hard in this life to be like, yeah, is it worth it? Friends, it is worth it. It's totally worth it that you have purpose in the pain. Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. Paul suffers to spread this salvation. We suffer to spread this salvation. And we may not like to hear this, is that Suffering is the appointed means by which God has ordained that He is going to bring salvation to the world. Suffering is the appointed means by which God has ordained that He's going to bring salvation to the world. And you go, well, how could you possibly say that? Is our God mean? Is He, is he sadistic? Is He rude? Like, why, why would that be a means that He's ordained for salvation to go out into the world? Well, think about it. John chapter 20. Jesus is died, he's risen, he's in the upper room with his disciples, and he looks at them and he goes, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Well, what did the Father send him to do? The Father didn't send Jesus here to thrive and to grow. He sent Jesus here to suffer and to die. Why? For the glory of God and that something would be produced and made available, the salvation of man, the forgiveness of sin. Jesus now says, and what the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. And they're even going to hate you. And it's going to be hard. And you will suffer. And one day you will die. You will either die a martyr's death or either you will die a normal death. But either way, we all die. How will you live your life? Will it be for suffering for the sake of the gospel or just suffering because 
You're just in a sin-soaked world. Make it accomplish and be a part of something. Now, verse 24, and I'm spending a little bit more time here at the front end just because of, of this idea of suffering, I think, is just hard for us, especially rejoicing in it, but because there's a big question that at least I had when I read the very end of verse 24 when he says, when Paul is talking, it's like, well, Paul, what are you talking about that you're stating that you suffer for the church of Colossae's sake in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Like, what does that mean? And what's happened is, is people have taken that as basically saying, is there something lacking in Christ, his, his work on the cross? And what we could do is we could read this, and what we could say is, no, 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 that's not true. But the fact of the matter is, is people have taken this passage and said, well, that's what it says, so that's what it means. And we are people of the Word who we take the Word literally, and we take it for what it says, and this is what it says. So how do we come to terms with this? There should be a question about this. Our Roman Catholic friends, they take this and they say, okay, Christians need to actually make up in different areas of your life where Christ's sacrifice and affliction upon the cross was not maybe enough of some of the things that you have done. So after you die, you need to suffer a little bit more in a place called purgatory. And so there's going to be a moment where you're filling up those afflictions that were lacking in Christ so that one day, once you've experienced enough of that, then you can go on and to be a part with the Lord in glory forever. But then you start to ask questions. You're like, well, what about when Jesus says on the cross, when he says, to tell us die, it is finished. Like, is there anything lacking in, in Christ? The best example that I heard from this was from a man by the name of John Piper. And the thing that he used was he used an example to be able to try to explain this in a different passage of Scripture. And so if you have your Bible, um, I want you to just turn over just a few pages to the left to Philippians chapter 2. To Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there. You can just jot down the reference. But Paul, again, he's still in prison because uh, he's in prison in Rome. This is a letter that he writes to the church of Philippi while he's in prison, just like he does with the book of Colossians. And what's happened here is Paul is expressing his gratitude and his thanks that the church of Philippi sent him a gift. And he's, he's rejoicing. He's thankful for it. He's, he's so happy about it. And the gift was actually given to Paul by the, 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 the messenger by the name of Epaphroditus. But when Epaphroditus left Philippi to go to Rome to deliver this gift, at some point in time, he gets sick so much to the point he almost even died. And what you get is you get to the end of this, this section. Um, uh, we'll, we'll look at verse 30, the very last verse of chapter 2. It'll also be on the screen for you. And, and Paul says, because he, Epaphroditus, came close to death for the work of Christ, uh, risking his life to complete, here it is, what was deficient or what was lacking, same word, in your service to me. And so the question might come, okay, Paul, what was lacking in their gift to you? Like, how is Epaphroditus being able to complete something that was deficient in this gift? Um, what was it lacking? What was it deficient of? Did there need to be a little bit more money, like a few extra bucks, in order to kind of fill up and complete the gift? Like, how could it possibly be lacking? Well, obviously, that's not, that's not the case. The service that Epaphroditus provides was to deliver the gift to Paul. So Epaphroditus is like, okay, I'm going to deliver the gift. And the delivery of the gift, of the gift was, was difficult. He had to walk miles. He got sick. He almost died. You could say he was suffering in the midst of serving. But Epaphroditus took on the serving 
in order to fill up or complete what was lacking in the Philippian gift. And what was lacking is the actual delivery of the gift to Paul. Because what good is a gift if it is not delivered, therefore can never be received? It's got to be delivered. It's got to be given. Jesus purchased our salvation, nothing lacking upon the cross whatsoever. But Paul, he doesn't purchase our salvation, he proclaims or delivers this salvation. Jesus suffered to purchase our salvation. Paul suffered to proclaim and deliver this salvation. For Paul, there's purpose in the pain. The, the ability to go on and to persevere is because the reward is so great that I can even rejoice in the midst of suffering. So with Epaphroditus and with Paul in Colossians, it's not this idea that, that the gift itself was lacking, but in order for the gift to be received, in order for the proclamation of the gospel to be made known, it's got to be delivered for it to be fulfilled. That's what it's lacking because here's the truth. Christ he died, he rose again, and what did he do? About 50 days later, what did he do? He ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is now until the Father tells him to return. And so what he's called us to do with the filling of the person of the Holy Spirit in our life is we have power to go and proclaim this message of salvation, grace, and mercy. That's what's lacking, and what takes place is, remember last week it says that Christ is the head of the church? I don't know about you, but when my body suffers pain, the head feels it. It registers it. Same is true for Christ. And he understood that for this message to get out, I had to accomplish it. I had to purchase it. But there's still going to be suffering that has to take place as it continues to go out. The thing that was lacking is not the work of Christ. The thing that was lacking that Paul fills up is the, the going, the sharing, the delivering, the proclaiming of the gift of Christ the gift of salvation. So, what is so important to deliver? Well, it's because we have something to proclaim. That's point number two, proclamation. First was persecution. There's purpose in the pain. Second is proclamation. Our purpose, when we ask that, that idea, what is the meaning of your life? What's the purpose of your life? Why am I here? The purpose is to proclaim. Specifically, he says, preaching the word of God in verse 25. Preaching the word of God. And then he clarifies, he says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations. See, there's this idea that in the Old Testament, you would read about all these messianic prophecies. And what was a given among the Jewish culture was there is a Messiah who is going to come, who is going to arrive, who is going to deliver, who's going to save. But there seemed to be a little bit of kind of a fuzziness to us, to it, almost a little bit of a mystery. But what I love about God, and almost every reference that I can recall in the New Testament, whenever it talks about the mystery, uh, it, it always talks about then what has been revealed. It's not a mystery, uh, it's not something that's fuzzy and stays fuzzy, that when the coming of Christ came, things began to kind of clear up a little bit. Things began to come a little bit more in focus of, oh, this is what Paul meant. But it was mysterious, and it was hidden for a time, because I think for most of them, the idea that God would come as a baby was probably not what they had in mind. That was a bit mysterious to them. The same is true, this idea that God would come and walk with us, be with us. Many of them believed that the Messiah wasn't going to just be God. It was going to be just a good man, a great prophet. But this idea that God would walk with us, be with us, God with us, that the Messiah would bleed out on a cross and die, 
That's, that's not the job of the Messiah. The job of the Messiah is to come and conquer and deliver us from Rome. That's, that's what's supposed to happen. And, and you might say, well, how do, how do we know that this was the mystery to them, that this was what was kind of you know, blurry for them? Well, just read the New Testament accounts of the Gospels, and you'll see that his closest of friends believe Jesus to be the Messiah. They believe that he's the anointed one, the chosen one. That's not in question. But the mechanics of how this all worked was kind of, kind of blurry to them. They, they didn't quite get it. But then time, it begins to be revealed. They begin to understand the mechanics of this is how God is going to bring about a means of salvation and deliverance for mankind. And so this is what we proclaim, that the Messiah has come, and He's come in such a way that you need to share this with passion, you need to share this with a little bit of gusto, regardless of our personality, that at least maybe there's a smile on your face because there's joy within you of what Christ has done and what Christ has accomplished. And you say, well, where are you getting that from the text? Well, look at what it says in verse, in verse 27. It says here, this mystery that's now been revealed to whom God willed to make known. Here it is. What is the riches of the glory of this mystery? This word of God, this mystery of Jesus that has been revealed, that is the hope of the glory of God is rich and it is incredible. Paul's like, man, I want to make this known. And it's not just something I want to kind of make known of like, here's the news. It's, this has a richness to it, a, 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 a depth to it. And we do this today. Some of you, if you go and see a film, you're going to go see that film. And if you really enjoyed it, you're going to come to me and you're not going to say, I saw this really good movie at the theater. I think you might like it. Just go check it out. I've been around some of you that there's something that you enjoy and you go and see that movie and you're just like, transcendent. Like you need to go and see this in a theater, big screen, and it feels like you're flying in a jet and you're just like, whoa, and it's just so much fun. And you get passionate about it because it was just glorious. It was rich. Same is true if you find someone of the opposite sex that you find incredibly attractive. You know what I didn't do whenever I met Tiffany and people were like, hey, I heard you met a girl. I'm like, yes, she uh, is pleasing to the eye and I find her company, you know, wonderful. And no, 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 no. I was like, she is good looking. Um, I like her legs and uh, I love how symmetrical her face is and she's got green eyes and uh, I love her hair. I love that it's so straight. And I just, I began to go on. I go, oh, and her character, her heart, there's just a tenderness and there's just, and you begin to share the riches of the glory of this person. Sometimes what we do is we go, okay, I've been told by God to tell people about Jesus. Oh, this is the worst. How am I going to do this? And we, we go up to someone and you're like, do you kind of want to hear about Jesus? If you have time, maybe, sort of. You know what I never do when people want to know about Tiffany? Even if they didn't want to hear it, I still told them about Tiffany. Because I loved her. There's a movie that you were like, I don't really want to see it. I was like, get over yourself. You need to see it. Jesus is worth proclaiming and sharing, even if it means suffering. Because it's so rich and so good. And it's also not just with passion that we share this glorious hope of the mystery of God. We share specifically to all. He says to Gentiles, they're grafted in, they're a part of this. For most of us, I would imagine that's you and me. That is for everyone. 
And what we're proclaiming is, is, again, not this idea of Jesus will give you peace, sure. Jesus will give you joy, fantastic. Jesus will give you this, he'll give you that, he'll give you this. The main thing is that we're proclaiming, is it the peace of God, the joy of God, the, the long-suffering, all these different things, the fruit of the Spirit is not what I'm giving you, I'm proclaiming him. He is who we proclaim. Even in the text, in the original language, in the Greek, it's not that, in my translation, uh, can you pull up verse 28, Karen? In my translation, uh, it says in verse 28, it says, we proclaim him. But in the Greek, to put priority and preeminence, it's him we proclaim. That's the actual the Greek order, but it messes up our grammar and English language. That even from there, Paul's like, no, him we proclaim. If there's any doubt of what we're proclaiming, it's him. That's what we're about that this mystery that's been hidden is now revealed to his holy ones. God made known to you this glorious mystery and is Jesus Christ in you. Him we proclaim. And you're like, well, who's him? Remember last week we spent a brief 50 minutes looking at the glory of Jesus and the grandeur of Jesus? I mean, can, can you just remember that with me for just a moment? Go back and listen to the sermon. But remember, this him that we were proclaiming, Paul has just been marveling at who he was. He's like, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, through him, all things have been created. He sustains creation. He is the sustainer. He's the head of the body, the church. He's made peace with God through the blood of the cross that he might reconcile us. That's this Jesus that we proclaim. There's richness there that Paul already has just given you. If you're like, what could I say about Jesus? Give him Colossians 1. That's rich and wonderful and majestic of who this Jesus is. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. So, he's God. He's Jesus Christ. He's in you, and you are in him. I don't know if you quite register the grandeur of that statement. Jesus Christ is in you, and you are in him. Why, God, would you do that? how unworthy we are, and yet you call us worthy. Proclaim him. He's worth proclaiming. And so, he says, as a result of this, him we proclaim. How do we proclaim him? We admonish every man and we teach every man with spiritual wisdom. That's or with, with, with all wisdom. What does that mean to admonish? Admonish is maybe to correct or to warn. That those who are in Christ, that's who he's talking to, Christians, we admonish you that if we see sin in your life, we're not being the judge, we're being a good brother or sister saying, no, incorrect. That's not the life that God has called you to. We don't want to see that. You don't need that. But not only do we warn and do we correct, do we admonish, but we teach. We let people know what is the truth, what is the way, what is the means by which we live, not legalistically, but according to Scripture, because you are different now, because you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And the reason why Paul is so big on this is because, number three, there's a presentation that he's all about. He wants to make a presentation. There's this perf he's purposeful in presenting every man. May we be the same. Paul says, man, at the very end of verse 28, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That word complete is perfect in Christ, mature in Christ, like Christ. Maybe a great just word for it is your whole, W-H-O-L, your whole, because you are in Christ. And you've been admonished and been taught more and more about him. This is sometimes what happens with us in the Christian faith. And let us be careful with this, all of us in this room is we do proclaim Jesus, and we do see people come to faith in Christ, and what we give people is this. 
Jesus died for your sins, and if you believe in him, you won't go to hell, so raise your hand if you want to believe. And I've seen people especially manipulate kids with this. Who, who doesn't want to go to hell? It's like, who does? Yes, Jesus died for your sins. You can believe in him, and I don't want you to go to hell, and I want you to believe in him, but I also want you to understand that that is just the beginning point Sometimes what we can be guilty of is, here's the gift of salvation, and it's almost as if that's the gift. The gift is Jesus. We want you to be in Him, and Him in you. When that happens, man, there's life transformation. We don't want you just to walk an aisle, fill out a card, pray a prayer, and go through the motions so that you can get your fire insurance, though we want no one, obviously, to go to hell. But we don't want people to have that and then go on and live your life however you want, because that's not how it works. It's just not. I heard one man say this, and I've stole it, so I'm just, it's mine now. It's not just about an altar call, it's about an altered life. It's not just about an altar call, though important, but it's about an altered life of Jesus Christ in you, transforming you, day in, day out, to be presented complete. So yes, come to the finished work of Jesus at the cross. He cleanses me. He forgives me. He makes me new. But that is just the beginning. That's just the beginning of the journey. Now his power works within me to alter the course of my life. And I hope this is true. Jesus alters your life. Hopefully you think differently. You speak differently. You, you, you behave differently. You spend differently. You manage your time differently. You career differently. You parent differently. Jesus changes it all. It's that thing that I've mentioned to you guys before in, in, in times past of, it's not that we're on this journey of where we got to achieve something in Christ because Jesus has already achieved it, but we want to be admonished and taught so that we are complete, mature, whole in Christ. And my hope is that as, as Christ is in us and he's working in us, that we look a little differently this year in September than we did last year in September. And it's not that you're like leveling up. That's not the Christian, that's not Christianity. But it's that you're maturing in Christ. You're growing in Him. Because Jesus doesn't leave things the same. He changes things. And when He leaves things, when He leaves the room, if you will, even though He doesn't leave us, don't go there. Things are different. You're different. I'm different. So, Jesus justifies us, sanctifies us, glorifies us. That's sanctification. Or excuse me, that's salvation. Let's not just leave it at the beginning. Let's see salvation all the way through until we breathe our last. So we're called to come alongside those in the Christian faith, walk with them in their relationship with the Lord and see them mature. And sometimes I get this question, is, well, who am I to do this? It's a fair question because... Sometimes what we do is we go, well, I don't have enough experience, I'm not old enough, I haven't gone to, I don't know, Bible school or whatever it may be. Or sometimes I get this, I'm, I'm too old. If you're still breathing, God has purpose for you and your primary purpose is to proclaim Him in all that you do and all that you say. But this is, this is a way to, to try to illustrate this. If you've ever worked with kids in any capacity... You, you got to get on their level. You got to work with them. And sometimes this idea of like, well, I can't admonish you. You're a grown adult. 
I can't teach you. You're a grown adult. You're not a kid. Sure, sure, sure. But even when there were kids that I was working with either at the church or at camps, they're not my children, but I've been given a stewardship, as Paul has in verse 25, a stewardship over these children. And so in my mind, you're mine (laughs) because I'm responsible for you. For some of you who've worked with kids, maybe they're not your kids, or maybe with you as parents, grandparents, those are your children biologically or through adoption, and so those are yours. But whatever the case may be, when you're working with that child, the thing that would be harmful to that child when I have a week with them at camp is look at them and go, I'm going to use Tim, little Timmy, (laughs) little little Timmy is being a danger to himself and to others. I could either tell him to stop, correct him, warn him, admonish him, or just let him live his life. What a horrible counselor. What a horrible parent. We admonish, not out of harshness, but out of love. Because why? Your job, specifically, we'll go with parents, your job as a parent is that you raise that child in the Lord to send them out in the name of the Lord. You get to have them for a brief bit of time. Yes, they're yours until forever. I get that. But you get to have that authority over their life for a brief amount of time that God gives you, those 18 years in in our country, if you will. But then what you're doing, you're not raising them so they always stay, you know, daddy's girl or mama's boy. You're raising them because you want them to go out complete, mature, whole, to be a contributing member of society and not a leech, right? We want to see that person grow. So we correct, we admonish, we teach. That's what Paul is saying. I want to see that in the life in the life of those who are in Christ. And for this to happen, fourth and final point, there's got to be power. For this to happen, there's got to be power. There's powerful, there's power in the purpose. It's a powerful purpose, however you want to phrase it. And Paul says at the very end of this section, he says, for this purpose, I labor, I strive. There's work going on. Sometimes, if we're not careful in the church, we just want people to show up and just go, give me Jesus. There's work, there's a labor, there's striving. That word striving is to agonize. There's an exhaustion involved. There's a persistence. It's using the term in an athletic event kind of way, like the burning in your lungs, like you're striving after this. Before it to be accomplished, it's got to be done according to His power, which mightily works within you. If we want to see people be, to hear the Word of God, the mystery of Christ, uh, we, we want people to, for him to be proclaimed and people to be warned and to be admonished, to be presented whole, then it can't be in our power. It's got to be in his power. And here's the truth of the matter. We all want his power, don't we? In, in pretty much every aspect of our life for our purposes. I, I've seen musicians before a concert go backstage and they'll pray and then they will go out and say, God, please, by all means, give us just the ability to be able to sing and to be able to do what you've asked us to do. It's going to be incredible. Glory for your name. And they go out and they sing things that have nothing to do with Jesus, glory of God, and it's quite actually vile. And they're praying for power in their performance. I've seen it with athletic teams. It's so funny. Both athletic teams before a competition, they're in their locker room. Uh, God gives the power to crush this team and to tread over them like a wine press. It's going to be awesome, Lord. Give us that glory. Give us that power. Other teams like, Lord, may we knock out their teeth and may we da-da-da. And it's like, who's getting the power? Whoever said it the best? Like, we want, we want God's power for our purposes. 
And to be frank, we, we do this before we, our team, before we come out and we lead in worship. We pray. So these are not bad things to do, to pray, to ask God for God's power. But His power, His power, you got to ask yourself the question, does His power mix with your purpose? Do they actually interweave? The illustration of this is uh, if one of you were to take my truck, and I'll, I really like my truck, so don't do this. But if one of you were to take my truck and go, I want to do something nice for Stephen, and gas is expensive, and I'm going to go fill up his tank, and you're like, I've driven a truck before, and I know a lot of trucks, they like to have diesel. And so I'm going to go to the gas station, I'm going to find that green pump, and I found that green pump, and you were, you were being so nice, and you go over there, and you, you put your card in, you do whatever you're going to do, and you fill it up, and then all of a sudden, you've ruined my truck, because it does not run on diesel. I don't even really want to run on ethanol. I want 100% gasoline in my truck. <laughs> it doesn't mix. There will be no power in that vehicle because the fuel doesn't mix with it. You empower, uh, we also even empower uh, purposes in our life with the way that we spend our time and our energy and our money. Like, we, we all do this. We all empower things that we believe in. If someone comes to you and they pitch you something that they think is worth your time, they're going to be like, well, you invest in it. And so you put money to empower that endeavor. You put your time into that to empower that endeavor. For, for me, my, my hope is that what we would recognize, like even this Saturday, we have a chance to together as a church, though, though Doug and Janice's group is leading out in this in this mission opportunity, service opportunity on Saturday, we have a chance to be able to minister to people up and down the street, but with what purpose and what, what power. It's great to, to, to show up, but we don't want to just simply show up. We want, we want power. And this is something that I, that I hope for us, and you guys have always been just incredible about this, is is that hopefully we don't have to have opportunities always presented to us in order to be who God has called us to be, but when there are opportunities presented for us that we, we, we do, we, we, we latch upon those and that we commit to those. So I would even say before you leave today, because Doug and Janice kind of need to know, if you're going to be with us on Saturday, let them know so they can prepare pro- properly for this Saturday. But we want to have power as we go into this time. We want to pray, we want to go, we want to serve, but it's got to be with His power. His power is the fuel which empowers His purpose. It's His power is the fuel which empowers His purpose. So what I want to invite you to do, we're talking about meaning, we're talking about purpose. I want us to kind of close with that. I want us to focus on that in your life personally. So what I'm going to ask you to do, and I know this is hard sometimes because it's, it's possible you could check out, but you just check in, all right? Bow your head. Close your eyes, open your ears, open your heart. If I were to ask you, maybe before today, what is your purpose, how would you answer? Oftentimes, we answer that question with what we do. It's not a bad answer, but I would say it's a lacking and incomplete answer. My hope and prayer is that whatever you are doing right now in your life, whatever your career may be, whether you're retired, is that 
you are one who is called to proclaim Jesus in whatever capacity you find yourself in. So to give you an example, if you were a policeman, I would say, no, 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 no. You, you are a policeman, but you are someone who proclaims Jesus as a policeman. I'm a pastor. Sure, that's, that's stuff that I do. But my hope is that him I proclaim as a pastor. You're retired. Him I proclaim as a retiree. I'm a student. I study. I proclaim him as I study, as I grow. I'm a teacher. Him I proclaim. I just happen to teach. So that's my arena of influence and opportunity. You stay at home with your, with your kids. Him I proclaim as I stay home, raising the next generation. Whatever career occupation you find yourself in, that is just a launching pad into opportunities to proclaim Him. Because that's our first priority. That's who we really are. Because what happens? What happens if something happens to me medically and I can no longer pastor? Is my purpose over? No. Because that's not ultimately who I am. Him I proclaim in every season and arena of life. Him. Now, is your career a bad thing? No, God gave it to you, so leverage it for Him. Him we proclaim. I want you to pray this prayer to yourself, and then we will sing. Pray, oh God, may we be fueled with your power as we seek to fulfill your purpose in this brief gift of a life you have graciously granted us. And Father, may we even be able to do it with joy in the midst of suffering because we believe in what it's producing. And we pray this for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would sing, pray. I don't know what you need to do. Only you do. Let's respond to the Lord. Go ahead and stand.